Welcome to episode 15 of Once Upon a Lifetime. So we're back with our second episode of Andrew Carnegie. We are picking up today with his big break, so to speak. Uh, We have our last episode covered his childhood in Dunfermline, Scotland, moving to America, getting set up um, with some very low-level jobs, and moving up the ladder on the strength of his hard work, but also his charm and his uncanny knack for succeeding at everything he put his hand to. All right, so the big break. I I mean, there's a lot of different, I think, big breaks that you could point to. I mean, this, though, is maybe the, well, it's the foundational big break. This is the relational big break that Andrew, everything, all of Andrew's success is kind of based on this moment. In 1853, he's 18 years old. He has made a name from him for himself, being this famous telegrapher. Not famous, but you know, he's he's he's, he's drawn skills. attention. I mean, who what kind of like telegraph got messenger guy is drawing attention to himself? Only Andrew Carnegie. <laughs> so in 1853, the Pennsylvania Railroad Company has decided that instead of having to rely on they've they have the the railroads at this time have the situation where they do not know when there's been an accident on their rails unless Which, a train yes. comes in and says there was an accident on the rails or there would be an accident and someone would have to run into town and send a telegram to Pittsburgh where it would then get delivered to the railroad company. So Thomas A. Scott works for the railroad company. He's decided this is an outrageous problem and we need to set up our own telegraph rails right along the lines so that we can send telegrams when there's an accident. We can just send a telegram down our own lines and then we'll know what we're dealing with, you know, what problems are out there. This is a really practical problem problem they have to solve. So they're going to invest. He handpicks Andrew to be the railroad's telegraph operator. And Andrew jumps at this opportunity because not only is it a step up in salary, but also the railroads are the place to be at this point. They are booming. There is plenty of room to move up the ladder. But his first opportunity, you know, his first experience Working with the railroad workers was not not great. No, I, I think that Andrew was all his life known to be um, not, I wouldn't say prim and proper, but like he, he had a strong moral code and he was just absolutely, um, he had little understanding when people themselves did not. So he never gave in to vulgarity or drinking or just any kind of rowdy behavior. He was all about doing his work and and doing the right thing. Yeah, he was kind of, a, he was pretty 
he was very straight laced. He was straight laced. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew how to joke around, but he was just found it. Honestly, I think it was a matter of taste for him. Mm-hmm. It's not that he felt particularly virtuous. Mm-hmm. He just didn't like it. He oh, just was no. with the little free time he had. I think really he'd rather have an interesting conversation, read a good book, do. Yeah, he he was just not. Carouse. Yeah, he was not a carouser. So he says, "I was not happy about it. I ate necessarily of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for the first time." And he kind of had this lifelong aversion after that to heavy drinking, to swearing, all of that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, now, during this period of time, he has been entrusted with this bundle of payroll checks that he's responsible for. He has to go on a train and deliver them from one place to another. As he is getting onto the train, he drops them onto the tracks. And he doesn't realize it at first because he has them folded up in this newspaper. So when he sits down on the train and opens up the newspaper, he realizes they're gone. The checks are just gone. No. Is this not the word? I mean, he's here he is, this young, sort of semi-successful. He's getting somewhere, you know. Um. He runs to the train engineer and begs him to reverse the train so that he can look on the tracks for this brown paper bag containing all these checks. This is unheard of to get someone to reverse a train. Right. He does. This is what I mean about Andrew. He can do no wrong. People just like the guy. So he actually spots this bag on on the tracks. He jumps off the train just as they're rolling down the bank into the river and he grabs them. And this incident, he always remembers. And he says he knew that this would have meant the end of his career. And because he had had such a near miss, it humbled him. And it always made him remember to be merciful and not judge others for their honest mistakes. He says, I quote, I have never since believed in being too hard on a young man, even if he does commit a dreadful mistake or two. And I have always tried, in judging such, to remember the difference it would have made in my career, but for an accident that restored me the package at the end of the stream. However, he, if he thought someone was actually derelict in their duties, that was not a problem. He would fire those people. So Tom Scott is the man who has hired him. Tom Scott. You are going to hear about Tom Scott a lot because they end up just, they are in each other's lives kind of till the end of time. And he really starts out as Andrew's mentor. But he first has to gain Tom Scott's trust. You know, why Why would Tom trust him? So one example of this um, was when Scott just hadn't arrived yet to the Telegraph office in the morning. And so Andrew is like sort of by default in charge, but not really. He is the telegraph guy. He takes the messages. He's not, he, you know, he is. He has no power. He has no authority. But there's been a crash. He gets a telegraph about it, a telegram. All the trains are stopped. They're all waiting. And there's a real mess on their hands. So he realizes I could fix this by ordering all the trains, different trains into different sidings. I can untangle this traffic jam on the tracks. I could do this. So he just does it. He sends repair crews and he has the whole juggernaut cleared out before Tom Scott ever arrives. All this time, all these messages he's sending, he is signing with TS for Tom Scott. (laughs) He's just signing his name. Like, well, he efficiently, he knows it's going to get done. (laughs) Right. So 
He's kind of nervously like waiting around when Scott gets back to the office. He's like, is he going to be like really mad at me or is he going to be really impressed? And Tom Scott just sort of plays it very cool. He doesn't really say anything. He doesn't fire him, though. And then later, Andrew hears through the grapevine that Scott had been impressed by the boldness and the effectiveness. Had he been just effective mm-hmm. or just bold, maybe not the same impression but it's that That combination combination, yes so he after that he is tom scott's right-hand man he's not just his telegraph officer Mm -hmm. excellent so moving ahead to 1855 um andrew is now 20 years old and his father has been ill and and after a period of illness he he dies and during you know before this Carnegie had already been the breadwinner in some ways I read one biography that said honestly his dad was just never that important to him well sadly is okay when he went to interview for his first telegraph boy job he asked his father to wait outside because he knew that his father looked like I guess fresh off the boat to him like too much of a broad Scotsman and Andrew was trying really hard to be American, you know, and his his father never really wanted to assimilate, just like he didn't want to assimilate with the times, he didn't want to assimilate with the place. And so he, his employer thought that his father had died years and years and years before. I don't think he ever knew that Andrew's father had been living for those first couple of years that he was working with him. Right. It was almost as if he wasn't a part and he's not, you know, he's not really a big part of Andrew's story. Um, even in Andrew's telling in his autobiography, I mean, he's he's kind to his father. He doesn't denigrate him or anything. Andrew's but. very kind. And as that's spoken as his mother is kind of known to be, I, I can't imagine that it was, you know, that they had happy, comfortable conversations about employment and money and things like that at home. It must have gotten heated. I mean, Margaret always spoke her mind and she probably was not afraid of letting Will know what she thought about it. But, you know, Andrew would be too kind and too decent to let us know what any of that consisted of. True. Right. So um, we're going to hit another. I I feel like there's so many big milestones in terms of his rise to the top of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but another one of them is when Tom Scott comes to Carnegie and he says, I've got some insider information which is not illegal, FYI. Mm-hmm. He says, I got some insider information. And if you have $500 to invest, I can set you up with this investment. It's, it's a sure thing. So there's some, there has been some debate, but it looks like pretty much what happened after that was Carnegie not only said, first he said yes, Yes, I'll do it. And then he goes around. He's trying to get money from everywhere, from his uncles, from from anyone he can, his friends, all those like little his like debater friends. Um, and it's not enough. So he has to go back to Tom Scott and he says, look, look, I can pay you back, but I don't have the money right now. How about you lend me the five hundred dollars and then we'll invest it. And because Andrew's Andrew, Tom Scott gives him the five hundred dollars. There's an IOU in Andrew's papers at his death that showed that he borrowed the money from Scott. They did mortgage the house to pay back the loan to Scott. Oh, Margaret was the one who was all for it, too. I think she was on the first ship to 
some savings and loan or some bank she knew about that would give her the 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 mortgage and she she was definitely behind this which was just so interesting because she had bet on Andrew before when she made that big gamble and and brought him from Scotland and she's doing it again she's risking it all yeah and she is throughout his whole life really his first and best business partner she has instincts and sense i mean she could be a mogul herself she probably (laughs) kind of was you know i mean he's always bouncing ideas off her so he so they mortgage the house they pay off the loan he gets that first ten dollar check from the dividends and he is just this is it he's like he's he this is not money he earned from the sweat of his brow Mm -hmm. this is money making money and he says eureka here's the goose that lays the golden egg (laughs) Exactly. And this was kind of a new idea, the whole is investment and speculation and stock. And this is another kind of modern thing for the time. That it is. And he goes back to those same five friends, his, his little debater club pals. And he's like, guys, this is awesome. And they're all kind of like, whoa, I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, this is amazing. No one really even. Well, it's almost like the Internet. It was an intangible thing, speculating on like things that were just not you've you've just it it wasn't how money was made up until that point. And so it was kind of incredible. So Scott is promoted, Tom Scott, is promoted to general superintendent, that, which means he has to move to Altoona, Pennsylvania. So Carnegie actually follows him there and works with him there for four years. They live in Altoona. They actually live together, too, Scott and Carnegie. So, I mean, they are really close. During this time, Scott's wife has died, and he's sort of unusually dependent on Andrew for emotional support. And, you know, they're like he's grieving, and Carnegie is his right-hand man. So this really forges this bond that is just more than professional. I don't think there's anything shady. No, not that much more, though. (laughs) Just a little bit more than professional. Yeah, a bit more than professional. (laughs) It's still professional. Yes. (laughs) And then four years later, so this is a great, this is amazing for Carnegie because Scott is a businessman. Now, he, he's also running, you know, he's superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad, but he invests money. He has all these in this all this insider track information. He's dealing with all of these business deals all the time. So Andrew is getting trained in, the, in that world, in the business world. When Scott gets promoted, Andrew's like, oh, man, I, I don't want to work for some other superintendent. He's kind of bummed and he's sort of worried and a little anxious about it. Well, Scott works it out so that Andrew does not have to work for any other superintendent. He becomes the superintendent. Andrew is 24 years old. (laughs) I mean, so successful. This is a huge jump. This is like, like he's kind of gone from like the secretary to the superintendent to being the superintendent. So J. Edgar Thompson and Tom Scott... I have both been so impressed with Andrew. J. Edgar Thompson becomes the president. And Scott and he have been working with Andrew on different little investments. And they're also putting a lot of their own investment money in Carnegie's name, which is not illegal, once again, to hide their interests. They put it in his name. So they have this kind of 
trio of of business deals that they do together. And now they're all at the very top of the Pennsylvania Railroad. So now that Carnegie is the new superintendent, he has an opportunity. Just like people have helped him, he's going to help people. And he hires his brother Tom as his assistant. And he also hires his cousin, Maria Hogan. And she becomes the first female telegraph operator in the country. And she ends up being... She, in turn, trains all these other female telegraph operators. So this becomes a thing. This actually becomes this sort of movement. It's one of those very rare career paths that is available to women at this time. Wonderful. So he moves his family to Pittsburgh. and But it is just so dirty. Mm. I mean, it's just the dirtiest, so sooty that if you put your hand on a railing inside of your own house, your hand is black when you take it away. Oh. So they're there a very short period of time, and they move out to Homestead, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, and cleaner, and he can he can hop on the train. It's like a 20-minute train ride from Homestead right into town, and then hop back out, and there's fields and trees, and they say it's the most sim- similar sort of landscape to Dunfermline that they've seen since moving back, since moving to America. And then comes the Civil War. Okay, so Lincoln is elected in 1860. Um, Andrew's now 25. And Andrew has actually been carrying on this debate with his cousin Dodd via letter. You know, his cousin is in Scotland. And Dodd is saying, how can America be that great if they have slavery? So Andrew's really spent a lot of time thinking about slavery. And he actually calls himself an ultra-abolitionist, is the way he puts it. Ultra-abolitionist. Ultra. Now, I mean, he's never, it's not like he's hiding runaway slaves or something. Like When I think of ultra-abolitionists, I'm thinking Quakers, you know? Right, right. But... He sees himself, and he's 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 a deep believer in mm-hmm. abolition. So he is really all about Lincoln's election. He's very happy about it. He goes. Lincoln comes and campaigns in Pittsburgh, and he goes to see him. And this is just really exciting for him. Then the South begins to secede, and this makes Carnegie, as he puts it, all aflame for the flag. Mm-hmm. He just becomes super patriotic, ultra patriotic, ultra. <laughs> ultra-abolitionist patriotic. 1861 is the firing of on Fort Sumter. And though war has not officially begun, there is a lot of ma- there's already a lot of materials being shipped on the railroads. Absolutely. The war effort is really going to depend on the industry of the North to, to keep feeding it, to make its might. And so the railroads, the shipping, all of these things, the factories are really going to be super, super important fields to be working in. Right. So as superintendent of the region, Carnegie has this huge job. I mean, so much comes through Pittsburgh. So much from the West and from the North comes through Pittsburgh to go down to the South. So he is in charge of making sure that Northern collaborators aren't using the railroads to send stuff down South. He's in charge of making things smooth and flow nicely down South. He's in charge of if there are um, Southerners who are sabotaging the lines, the railroad lines, he's got to get those fixed and ready. You know, he's in charge of a lot. This is actually a really big... And the president and the secretary of war all agree that 
railroad men should more or less be exempt from the draft mm-hmm. because they are too important to the war effort in their current roles. And you need capable people doing those jobs. Now, there is some debate about this episode. He puts it in his autobiography, but apparently the dates don't match up, is what I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, what is true is that the Confederates had had sabotaged some miles of track and telegraph lines down in Annapolis, Maryland, that were needed to get in and out of Washington, D.C., and to communicate with the Capitol. So in Baltimore... You've got people on both sides of the issue. You've got some and people even in charge in Baltimore. Like the mayor does not agree with the other guy, other guy in charge. It's going to be a guy. (laughs) That's true. It's going to be a man. (laughs) So the men don't agree on whether or not they're with the Confederacy or they're with a union. And they have 800 Massachusetts soldiers who have to go through Baltimore to Annapolis and then from Annapolis into D.C. That's the only way they can actually get. So all of these soldiers from the north need to pass through Maryland to get into D.C. to be of use to the army. Well, they're stranded in Baltimore. They are being attacked in the streets by Confederate sympathizers. It's uh, actual riots. Yeah, there's actual riots. They're they're shooting at them. Okay, so the telegraph line... Andrew says he gets sent down with a crew to fix the line between Annapolis and D.C. So that all they have to do is get the guys from Baltimore to Annapolis. But then at least there they can what they decide to do is send them on a ship down the Chesapeake Bay through the harbor, land them in Annapolis, and then they'll get back on the trains and go into D.C. So Andrew's sent with this crew to fix these lines. And he, while this is happening, he says a telegraph line snaps and whips him in the face. And he has this scar, this big scar on his face. And he says, I was so proud to shed blood for my country. <laughs> it's, it's like a little, yeah. you're like, okay, it's not the same. Well, it's take it. just yeah. not. But good for you. <laughs> For wanting to, you know, he's patriotic. So one biographer says he was in Pittsburgh and there were soldiers who fixed that line. It was not him. So what I and I don't know which one is true, but what I do know is true is that he did spend four months down in the D.C. area laying out miles of tracks out from D.C. to Alexandria, Virginia, where the Union was going to launch their attack against the South. So he is in charge of getting these tracks laid in an efficient manner. And it is on these new tracks that Andrew then has to direct the traffic of wounded soldiers through. There's already wounded soldiers coming up and through. So he is ushering hundreds of wounded men onto trains when he's informed the Confederates are moving closer and closer to his own position. And he stays put until the very last train is leaving to go back to D.C. as the Battle of Bull Run commences. Oh, boy. And that's the battle, you know, where you have all the picnickers who have come out from D.C. and they're like sitting on the hills like, oh, this is so fun with my picnic basket. Fun outing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he's there and he actually escorts these wounded soldiers back into D.C. So he does do those things. At that point, he is relieved of his D.C. area duties and he goes back to Pittsburgh to do his actual job running that that region. So at the same time, we have oil. Oil is discovered, and it's not really discovered. I mean, it was always there. It was like 
literally bubbling up in the creeks and like making wells making messes it just wasn't much use of anything until you had machinery that could run and make money right out of other raw materials so all of a sudden oil and and the control of it was pretty important and because whale oil is getting less and less available but they finally figured out a way to use this oil from the ground to light lamps so all of a sudden it has a purpose and they have machinery to extract it. So this is sort of, this is an Things up and coming. Rolling along. This is one of those things that as you watch Andrew, he's always one step ahead of the curve and he's always right. Like he just makes the right calls. So oil, he makes the right call. He invests in oil. And this is the first time where he's not actually investing with Tom Scott and Edgar Thompson. He's striking out on his own. Here he goes. He's in oh, Pittsburgh. Andrew. He's like, all right. He buys these stocks at $10, $10 a share. And by 1862, when he's 27, he is making a lot of money from oil. I believe this is when he becomes a millionaire. Yeah. Um, he has certain investment rules that he's following, that he always follows, that I think are useful to know about. And he follows them kind of flawlessly. One, only invest in companies you've investigated yourself. Duh. Like, don't take other people's opinion on it. Two, don't act without insider knowledge. So... Kind of harder to do these days, but... yeah, uh, Much harder, True. as it should be. <laughs> um... But back then, that was just that was just business. That mm-hmm. is that is what business was: networking and knowing and knowledge, knowing things, the relationships. Mm-hmm. That was doing business. That was the whole gig, really. Three, invest only in companies that sell goods or services for which the demand is growing. Mm-hmm. The oil is a perfect example of that. And four, always invest with a group of partners so that your group. Your four guys or so will have a controlling interest in the company. So your investment actually takes over the company in conjunction with the other guys you're investing with. So he actually invests in the oil with Coleman, who ends up being Tom's, you know, his younger brother, Tom, Mm -hmm. Tom's father-in-law, which I find is kind of interesting. Oh. All in the family, you know? Right. Or you could just say all cronyism. Either way. (laughs) So he makes enough money off the oil that he decides he's going to go into business for himself, actually creating something, manufacturing something. He knows that investing in railroads is not a great idea. It's very risky. There's so much upheaval. You can hit it rich, but a lot of these railroads are going under. Um, And he is so familiar with the railroads at this point. He just knows this is not a wise investment. But what is wise is to provide goods or services to the railroads. That's less risky. It's very lucrative. So he decides to start a bridge making company called the Keystone Bridge Company. And this is a great idea because what is happening during the Civil War? This is brilliant. Yes. It's so smart. The bridges are being destroyed. (laughs) They're being burnt down. So I think he's taking a look and saying, well, you know, somebody's going to rebuild the bridges. I mean, it's a shame they're getting burnt down, but somebody's going to have to do it. 
Yep. Why someone's Yeah, someone's going to have to do it. So he calls the Keystone Bridge Company the parent of all other works. So this is another one of those flagship moments in his life. There's so many of them you can point to and say, this is when he mm-hmm. made his money. I mean, he's already a millionaire right now. So Amazing. which really was the the big one, who knows, you know. But then he decides, what the heck? I don't want to buy my iron from somebody else. I just want to make my own iron. And so this is where we see this idea of vertical integration, where he's going to he's gonna build the bridges. He's also going to make the iron. Mm-hmm. Well, to make the iron, you need coal. And in particular, you need what's called coke. You just have to get cocaine out of your mind and think about the coke fields being coal fields. It's a kind of coal where you've heated it up enough that the gas is extracted from the coke from the coal so it's kind of a purified coal so you need coke to make the iron so what does he do he buys he starts an iron he starts cyclops iron then he buys coke fields and starts making his own coke so he is now manufacturing not at this particular moment i'm kind of jumping ahead just to show this is the business mentality that he Mm -hmm. has that first he decides to do the bridges which is kind of a stroke of genius but that leads that's why he calls it the parent of all other works right because everything sort of feeds into this idea clearly it's brilliant just to keep all those things in house because then you not only do you cut out the middleman but all of the communications and you know people letting you down things falling through delivery so on you just everything is far more efficient when you're controlling the process right um he also gets permission from the railroad company at this point. And this is still during the war. This is interesting. He's so, in some ways, he is so removed from the war, but he calls himself an ultra-abolitionist. So I think he cares, but he's really not personally living the ups and downs of the war. I feel like he strongly feels he is he's doing his part in keeping the machine of the North going. Like, that is... A super important thing. So he feels that he and his peers that are doing this work are doing important work. Absolutely. Um, but he does take off for three months to go to Scotland. Well, as you do. Right. So this is fine. You know, uh, in a personal way, this is that big moment. He's hit it rich. He's got his, what did he say? The four horses in the carriage. And his oh, mom yeah, said, yeah. it won't do any good if we don't go back to Dunfermline. <laughs> right. Well, this is it. He takes her. He's Mm -hmm. like, we're going. So they go for three months. They travel by train to Dunfermline. And the sight of home of the town brings his mother to tears. And he feels like he's finally repaying her for all the sacrifices that she has made for him. And, you know, she she bet on him and he hit it big. And this is it. This is their moment. This is a really big moment for them personally. I think it must have been for... You know, the the village people, for the town people to see them return in in the style in which they did, too. Right. So he says, you know, the shops and stores seem like hovels and everything's dirty and tiny. It's just so much smaller than in his memory, which is almost everybody's experience going home as an adult. It's like, oh, geez, everything's so little. Um, 
his aunt, I love this. His aunt, Charlotte, is so proud of him. You know, oh, you've done so well for yourself. And then she says, someday you will be able to return and have a shop in the high street. Because oh. <laughs> that in her mind is just like the height of success. Like this, you know, you, you, it's good for you. You've done well for yourself. But, oh. you know, here he is. He could buy the entire all the shops of High Street would not be a problem for him to yes, buy at this point. But yes. she's she's adorable. Um, unfortunately, he gets super sick. No one knows with what. And they, they bleed him. They're still bleeding people <gasps> up in Scotland. So he almost dies from this Gosh. illness. And it's kind of a miserable last two Like the two months, the last two months are miserable for him. Mm. But he gets home. 1863 comes. He is now making... Dividends of $45,000 a year. Not modern money. That's back then money. Mm -hmm. His salary as superintendent of the railroad is $2,400. So his actual railroad salary is only 5% of his annual income. Just through his investments and his... Yeah. So why does he keep this job? (laughs) Because I'm sure that keeping this job keeps him in the center of what's happening you you still get to meet people make connections and be right in the middle of things and you get all that valuable insider information absolutely can't give up on that no uh no he's too smart for that he's 28 and he is a millionaire many times over so we will leave andrew there sitting fat and happy on his pile of wealth there at the end of the civil war Thank you to Evan Cresta for editing and mixing this episode. And you can join us on Facebook at our site page, Once Upon a Lifetime, or at our website, onceuponalifetimepodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. <laughs>